Welcome to a special segment of the SWW show. It is me, AJ. I am here with Paolo, uh, a self-quarantining uh, VR developer. I feel hey, like, I feel hey, like the self-quarantining at this point is a, a non-factor. I feel like everybody's in some form of either stay at home or uh, staying at home for safety of others. Mm-hmm. In this, uh, yeah. this post corona pandemic world mm-hmm. which i have to say i feel really bad for the beer like they couldn't have named it anything else like they had to go with coronavirus <laughs> that's that's very true like i I, I'm not, I'm, I don't even like corona but like i kind of feel bad for him like they just kind of got thrown into this <laughs> well you know i know that after this a lot of folks will be probably buying corona and drinking it as a joke i mean you know it's a I don't know. It's a marketing entry point for them one way or another, but we'll see how that goes. I feel they, like they need to go they, hard on the, on the marketing of just the vi- It's weird to say viral marketing when you're talking about a uh, virus <laughs> pandemic, but the viral marketing of, Oh, you're going to name a virus. Well, I know it's, they didn't name the virus after it. It's a strain of viruses, but, the worst it's, pandemic the world has seen in how many years, and it's named after a beer. And if they don't lean into that, the, I think they're missing out. Yeah, the the TikTok thing, like it's Corona time, has been going around like on the on the waves. It's I'd, I'd be surprised, like if this came out and everything was all over, I can imagine Corona saying something like, you know, it's all over, time to drink some Corona or like win <laughs> or I I don't know something something it, about that. It's all over. It's Corona time. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I feel like everyone's going to make one once it's out. I can't wait for that, though. See what happens. So your game is Tales of... Okay, here we go. The Aswang. Aswang. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I try to normally pronounce everybody's uh, name. Mm-hmm. Granted, my uh, world languages uh, stop at approximately mm-hmm. Central Europe, so... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually pretty curious how a lot of folks have pronounced it. Like, if I didn't say what it was pronounced, how would you have pronounced I it? I would probably go Azwang or Azwang. Like, obviously, so I cheated a little bit. I looked at the Steam page, real yeah. saw that it was uh, of a uh, descent that is uh, east of me, far mm-hmm. east. So I'm like, it's probably not Wang, as in like European way of mm-hmm. reading that. So, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, it, it's it's yeah, it's it's pronounced yeah, it's pronounced Aswang. The the reason why I guess it was really hard to sort of choose a name that sort of was that sort of resonated with a lot of folks, and then I did realize the the connotations of how people may perceive the word Wang from a European standpoint. <laughs> Because there were many, there were many terms that I wanted to say, like the Filipino mythological creatures, the the monsters, or and there were so so many words. I I went through like 
a couple of writers just to figure that out. And we eventually settled on as, aswang because it was it was sort of easy for everyone to pronounce because there were terms like the 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 capre and you end up reading it as capers and you have another one that's way more trickier to pronounce the uh mananangal and it's like well what is that and, yeah, nope. and so I was that like, that would be a hard miss on my end yeah so it's it's usually like trying to figure out like okay how do you how do you get, put some of this and introduce them and without without putting a really different lens on them so yeah um the vr game is tales of the aswang and it's a game about Filipino mythological creatures. So that's, and the VR experience has you exploring some of the tales or at least some of the, um, how would you say, I forgot the right term for that. It was, um, it's like verbal myth. Yeah, but it's more, um, oh, let me find, it's like a verbal mythology or like, um i'm just like oral oral tradition there you go it's oral tradition oral tradition i was gonna so say i i know like uh scandinavian it would uh, in english it would mm -hmm. translate it into basically nightmares mm -hmm. um like the the dark tales effectively. yeah which scandinavian uh dark tales are let me mm -hmm. tell you they give uh Freddie and Jason are run for their money, so. <laughs> what? Oh, they're just super dark. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah. A lot of these, um, a lot of these tales, at least what sort of fascinated me about the tales was that, um, I mean, I, I usually just have to give a primer, is that these are from the Philippine islands. There are over 7,000 islands, actually. It's it's actually on the, it's somewhere on the far east and it's it's you know it's somewhere around southeast asia it's close to japan korea china everywhere and it's subdivided into three major islands and tiny islands that surround those three major islands and throughout history it's it had relationships with malaysia indonesia china it had a lot of trade previously and then you know when the when the whole world was being colonized by Europe and Spain, we got colonized by Spain. And Magellan was the one who had set foot. So the one who discovered around the world, the one Magellan who sailed the Strait of Magellan was the one who landed in the Philippines. And to give it, you know, really interesting, short, he did take over some of the middle islands and he went all the way up and he was able to sort of, um, I would say like, the Spaniards had control of the Philippines. Let me see. I'm doing a Google search of this, like 300 years. That's yeah. Yeah. 898 minus. Yeah. That's, um, that's, 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 that's a lot actually 1565. Yeah. 333 years. So they took over. They also sold it to America. Um, there was a period where they sold it to America and the, the Philippines was, was basically, an American um, controlled region and somewhere time during the Commonwealth, they decided that they want to do independence and yeah, they would their independence or public, the whole government system is actually patterned after the United States, but I'm not going to go deep into that. But the interesting thing about that is that the North developed their own stories because of the colonization of Spain. So they developed a lot of Spanish traditions, the religion and those storytelling priests came in. However, some of the 
southern islands were not entirely controlled by Spain because they could not fight or attack them in any way, but they still said that the whole island was still theirs, that whole area. And throughout the years, um, one of the things that was pretty prevalent were stories about the spirit, the, the ground, the earth, and a lot of that with nature. When the Spanish came, the religion basically said those are basically all devils and their demons, and they tried to change all the stories to fit that story. So a lot of the stories have evolved. However, one of the things that the priests noticed was that the oral tradition was very strong about the belief system of the locals, like they couldn't get, get rid of that. And, and of course, as the years progressed, this is actually the reason why I actually brought this, this project was, I'm not sure if you're familiar that, you know, a lot of developing countries have this sort of colonial mentality where they consider anything that's coming from a Western source to be far more superior than theirs. So when it was time for them to be independent, there was a decision, um, um, let me see, um, I don't know why I'm blanking out um, on names, oh, Maximo Ramos, one of the uh, founders of Phoenix Publishing and one of the, one of the uh, professors as well in the University of the Philippines suggested that we should talk about mythological creatures because it informs our own country's culture. And this was like in the early days. And unfortunately, the government and the education board basically said, you know, um, Roman mythology, Greek mythology is more superior. So we should study that instead. And it got relegated to go to the past. And throughout several years, the country, of course, absorbed a lot of Western culture. That's why if you talk to any Filipino, they seem to understand a lot of Western culture and everything because that's what they were they were, you know, fed with everything. So everything from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they're going to get every reference you throw at because they grew up having that culture. And then so far, when we started going into the woke culture, that's when everybody realized, like, why are we studying all of this? We have our own culture. And people started digging through all these old stuff. Like they, they resurrected an old writing language. It's like, why are, why are we writing? Like, the, the Filipino alphabet was actually based off the English alphabet. Like everything's the same. It's just that the pronunciation was different. And they realized we had our own writing. Why didn't we do this? So there's like a resurgence of that script coming back. And, and what fascinated me when I looked at the stories was like, I wanted to do something about this was that I, I heard about these stories when I was a kid, like don't go out. There's a monster there. There's this and that. And I discovered that these mythological stories were sort of prevalent on every island, that even though you were from the South and, you know, you were not completely influenced by Spanish colonial things, but instead, you know, had all those Japanese influences because during World War II, the Japanese actually occupied the bottom half of the country. There, the stories, the monsters, everybody knows that. And this is before the age of the internet. Like everybody knew what a Capril was. Everybody knew what an Aswan was. Everybody knew what a Malinangal was. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. It's like, how do these stories traverse from miles away? And how does everybody know about them and what they do? And, you know, when there's like an old building, like, don't go there. There's a Mananangal there. I go some baby, everything. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty scary. So from that, I sort of like dove deep into the 
like the reason, like why do these exist? I talked to a lot of anthropologists, writers, uh, just locals, uh, indigenous group who've told some of these tales and tried to see like what was sort of the the thread that was there. And then I started building an experience that sort of um, had that story and also something that was based from my own personal experience. So yeah, that's that's a little bit of that story. Sorry, it was a bit long, but yeah. No, no problem. Yeah, it's always it's always fun to see because I mean especially when we talk to people from Central Europe or even talk to a couple from Japan where like the games they're making they're clearly even if they have some local flavor to them they're clearly aimed at a a western and american you know english audience and so mm-hmm. they sometimes lose the like the thing that makes them different whereas you're going like nah like we're going this is all it is this is what makes the Philippines special. It's not, you know, oh, telling these stories in a way that the That's average the average middle American would, oh, well, it's the story of da-da-da from whatever. You're saying that, no, this is the story. Yeah, because when, when I was building this, when I was building this this whole game, there was a lot of conversation that I was having with a lot of folks. They were mostly like, what What are you going to do in the game? It's like, are you going to shoot them down? And I was like, why do you all say you want to shoot them down? And and I started doing some research that, yes, there there are VR games that that involve a lot of the Filipino monsters, but for some reason, they involve the same Resident Evil concept. You're in a house, there's a monster, you got to find a way to destroy it. It was like, that's interesting. Okay, that's great. It's there's there's a lot of that colonial response that I noticed that in order to have something of the unknown, you tend to destroy the unknown, something that's foreign to you. And that's why, you know, in most games you have a gun and you have shooters because the unknown is to be reckoned with, to be destroyed. Whereas in other types of games, the unknown is something to be discovered, to be reflected upon and to have realizations. I mean, I would I can give an example such as the early days of Silent Hill one, two, and three. If you've played those, a lot of the experience was on about the space, the sound, the ambience, the 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 monsters, the design, what they represented. Sure, there was shooting, but it was very focused around the world, the space, the environment, the puzzles. And then as Silent Hill progressed, they gave the of course the rights to develop that to a Western. Um, I, I believe it was a Western um, game company, and they ended up turning Silent Hill into a shooter, and that ended up, you know, straining the franchise. Like this isn't the horror that we love. So when I was making, when I was making this game, it was it was sort of difficult to try and talk to Filipinos because they also play games. Like they've had the history of Famicom, PlayStation, and everything. Now it's very hard to talk to them about building a game about Filipino monsters where it doesn't involve you shooting them down. So that was pretty difficult for me to like try to think of a design system that had it. Like, so they were like, so do you talk to them? What do you do? Do you do tasks with them? And, and that was a sort of hard exploration for me. It's like, how do you get the VR users afraid and 
you know, feel the same level of powerlessness, but, you know, not have like that, that power that they can shoot. Cause you know, if you give the right. player like a gun in the space, it's like, yes, I feel powerful. I'm okay. Now I shoot them down, you know? Yeah. So when, that was you, when you give a player an option, like give them any sort of crutch to lean on, whether it be a mm -hmm. gun, whether it be a crowbar, you know, anything that could resemble a weapon, people are way less scared. It's like, all right, mm -hmm. I got something. But if you take that away, like, I've I played a fair share of VR games, anything where you're experiencing a story and you don't have something, like I said, uh, something that could be conceived as a weapon, like, you're way more interested, way more, like, you're going to focus on it more because the goal is no longer, okay, eliminate the threat, keep moving. It's figure it out, figure out what's going on, deal with it. And if that deal with it is just look at it and watch it go away, then well, that's, a, that's a valid response. Mm -hmm. That's very I, true. I, I do like how you, you seem to be taking a Lovecraftian approach. Oh yeah, I love them. <laughs> in the in the sense that you want like these these creatures are a thing in the world. It's not like it's not a Resident Evil or a, I I can't even think of right now where the threat has come in to mm -hmm. a preset world. Like the the creatures are a part of the world. You're not dealing with them because they're, I hate the term alien, but an alien threat. Mm -hmm. They're just there. That's a part of life. You just don't go to that part of you know, that part of the, the world on a dark night because something's there. That's true. I was, I was thinking of um, Forbidden Siren, actually, um, when you mentioned, like, the threat's there, you don't see it, it's fear, it's the unknown. Uh, you ever play um, Siren or the Fatal Frame? I'm just remembering all these old horror games uh, that I've played. No, so um, Mike always likes to say that I was an uncultured kid because I didn't watch cartoons as a kid. I didn't uh, get into games until I had a, a slim PS2 and probably, well, it was at least oh three okay oh four maybe so that was my first foray into games so i have started to go back as i have time but i'm also mm -hmm. realizing that you no longer have time like <laughs> that's true it's that that chart that i always love it's it's the three things it's the kid they have a lot of time a lot of energy no money Mm -hmm. I'm in the middle where I have uh, no time, money, in like half energy. And then there's the old where you have time, money, but no energy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling that right now. I just have no time to experience older stuff. I totally agree with you. That's that's where I am right now. It's like, you know, you have to play games because, you know, it's part of your career. And, and I'm at the point, the same with you, you know, like, no time working for money and my energy is like getting really low 
And I got to make sure that when I play a game, like I can't be putting on my game designer lens when I'm playing this game, because this is, this is going to be bad. I want, I need to experience this as much as I can, because when I play it, it's like, okay, I understand the mechanics. I understand what you're doing here. I know what you're doing. It's pretty obvious. It's like, it's, and, and I try to, I try to get away from that. So I try to like relax before I play it, but sometimes I can't force it, but just play it. So and I feel like I'm going to go through that when I'm going to play the new Resident Evil 3 when it comes out, because I need to, like, see how the horror goes. But For sure. Yeah. Siren was a PlayStation 2 game. It sort of... It was one of the scariest games for me, because you you had no idea what was going on. And it was it was a Japanese game that was dubbed by Europeans, which made it really weird to experience, because it was really weird. But... Basically, the premise was somebody stumbled on a ritual and the ritual went wrong and now everything's covered in fog and all these zombies came in. However, you as the player have the ability to slight jack, meaning like you can see what the enemies are seeing and they're walking around as zombies. So you have to like find a way to escape, but you have to like see where the enemies are walking and their paths are and you must not be spotted or to make noise. And the story is told by different people throughout the whole village when the ritual failed. So it's pretty scary because you have no guns. You may have a gun and you only have like three bullets, but the enemies ideally don't die. They just wake back up. So it's pretty horrifying. It's like, I need to know what's happening, but you know, it's also terrifying to see what the monsters are seeing as they walk around. Because when you slight jack into them, you can see what they can do. I will say the the added horror that you get, if you... Any anybody that's making a game out there, if you have a gun in there, have limited ammo. That is the scariest thing in the world. When or you're, just when you're in a firefight, when when you're in a firefight, and all of a sudden you run out of bullets and you don't realize it. That happened to me. I was playing RE2, the remake, yeah. and got into a firefight. Like I had beaten, I was like two thirds of the way through the game, and had done fine. All of a sudden, I ran out of ammo, just on like a normal zombie. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, uh, I don't know how I'm going to take this guy down. I have nothing. I have no grenades. My knife is barely there. And, you know, I'm either going to have to dodge this guy or hopefully survive a hit and find ammo. And like, RE2 really isn't that scary of a game it has its jump scares but yeah adding that element of okay i am now helpless definitely ratchets up any sort of tension and yeah they're actually that's that's true i've had that experience while playing re2 the fear was mostly about you know your (laughs) inventory management like you have (laughs) resources limited stuff and like how do you deal with the scenario it's it's more about because the game like games when you play them they exist in your head so when you're playing something like RE2 and you're walking around like oh I got a gun I'm fine and then you know you're like do I you're like oh I got three zombies fine shoot 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 great I'm walking in the park and you go to the next room and you're like there's no ammo here and then there're like five zombies and then you're like oh I'm freaking out not where am I going to go I need to go there so you know it's it starts to dawn on the player that they have to decide which battles to pick and which ones to fight and which ones to move forward to, you know, move from. So, and that's where that fear came from. And 
And I think that's, that was the fear that was created, or at least discovered when they designed Resident Evil 4. Because it was purely action-based, but the fear was more about management and surviving the scenario, less more about the environment. Whoever, yeah, whoever thought was... a management game could be scary, you know? Like, you don't think about farming simulator or soccer simulator or anything like that being scary because it's not in that that you know, dressing of a a scary area. But it's the same thing. It's it's just inventory management. It just happens to be that there's somebody coming at you that's uh, wanting to rip your face off. That's that's very true. I mean, I can imagine that a, to a business person, a stock a stock simulator game that's crashing would probably be would give them a heart attack. So <laughs> probably the same as that, you know. Imagine, like, oh my god, it's depleting. <laughs> it's like freak out, you know. So yeah, there are. It's there's a lot of fear that can happen in a you know in a system, especially. It's mostly because you've invested time on it, and you know you've you've made the calculated decisions because games are mostly about making decisions and choices and and if your choices seem to fail that's what freaks you out because you realize that your choices were wrong and you have to realize how can i sort of make you know newer or better choices as i progress so that this doesn't happen to me again it's more of like a it's it's a great simulation to experience you know failure and success like learning learning through failure through failure states and that's that's ideally how i perceive games and gamers that the way i perceive i'm you know hardcore gamers are gamers who can tolerate frustration and casual gamers is gamers who cannot tolerate frustration that they need to be encouraged and supported that's at least the way i perceive it because Casual games, mostly on the phone, give a lot of feedback like, you did well, here's five stars, here's a sound. While hardcore gamers who can tolerate frustration can play games like Darksiders, sorry, Darksiders, am I saying near Neo? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm like, my broadcast really early in the morning. Is that right? Was that right? Darksiders? I'm sorry. It was like, there's, um, there's Darksiders? I, I've never so played a Darksiders. Dungeon. I know the third one's coming out. But... Um... What was it? Dungeon game hard. Oh my god! Like dungeon I'm, game I'm hard. Freaking... Oh no! Like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm blanking out right now. Google um, Google you know... foo. <laughs> oh god! It's like uh, game Neo. Um, similar. I'm like I don't know why it's like it's like a my brain's breaking out. You know, like dungeon. Sekiro, there you go. Sekiro, Sekiro games, games like Sekiro, Dark Souls. There you go. Dark Siders, sorry, Dark Souls. There you go. It's like a, it's like a Dark Soul game. Like, you know how frustrating Dark Soul ideally oh, yeah. is. So, you know, gamers are there to go through that frustration. They, they want to be frustrated and they want to overcome it because when they do, they feel that sense of fulfillment. And it's not about you know light, shiny things saying congratulations, but it's about that personal self. And that's what I sort of see what hardcore gamers are and casual gamers are ones that I would want to say they need to be handheld because they don't want, they don't want to, they can't tolerate that level of frustration. That's why, that's why I feel like a lot of games now when you start a game and they, they don't say very easy, easy, normal. It's more like I have played games before and I've not played games before. Mm -hmm. So they know, okay, we know you've tolerated this much of frustration. So we know how to, 
frustrate you enough or not enough. So anyway, I think we went on a tangent from VR, but yeah, it was good. Yeah. I, I will say it's it's an interesting time, not only in the world because of what's going on outside, but that with that, what's going on, keeping people indoors, I think now in a weird way, especially since Alex just launched, now was the perfect time for VR because mm-hmm. there's a big title. There's a title that's getting people to play in VR for potentially the first time. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see like the success of VR games that are coming out in the near future on the back of Alex. And also will this kind of spurn on a second development craze for VR? Because I remember like when the five was first coming out, like there was this kind of push to get stuff Mm -hmm. on it. So it was all the shooters that you can imagine, Mm -hmm. obviously, What's the first thing that people do in VR? They want to hold a gun. <laughs> Maybe says something about the American culture, but um, you know those were very big. And then kind of these experiences, when they were there, kind of felt half-baked because people were trying to figure out how to do stuff in VR. Mm. That, now, that's not necessarily a knock against the game. It's, you know and new technology you know so the first iteration of a new technology is obviously always going to be rough look at the first iphone probably wouldn't want to use it today mm-hmm. you know so the first iteration of things is rough and now that we have the index that is kind of this like not necessarily perfect headset mm-hmm. but as close as you can get right now it's that's true it's spurning on hopefully people to be like okay vr stands a chance that's true <clears throat> and um i actually want to when you said first iteration first thing that came into my head was the controller do you remember the very first playstation controller that didn't have analog sticks it was just a regular playstation and when the analog sticks came out they just used the analog sticks as up down, but they had no idea what to do with it. When they started doing shooters as early as Medal of Honor on PlayStation 1, they had no idea how to control that naturally. And throughout, you know, several years, there were games that understood that, okay, so the lower right now controls the camera and the, you know, the top is strafe, and that sort of like solidified first person on consoles. With VR now, I'm like going to VR now with Half-Life Alex. I I kind of hope that there will be a resurgence of VR development. I mean, I've been trying to wait for the tools to be available so I can take a look at that. It's it it was funny because can I talk about the uh, the job industry for VR? If <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> so early on in the early days when VR came out, there's a lot of hiring that goes on for VR. I remember that because I was applying to some of those jobs. And and there was a lot of it that was going around. We just want to do a contractual work because they had no idea where this medium was going to go. They wanted to look for somebody that was focused as maybe a game developer, a level designer, but understood VR because they might bring their game to VR, but they're not entirely sure. So that, and a lot of the conversations sort of like revealed to me that 
a lot of companies were not ready to invest in this platform. They wanted to explore it, but they didn't want to do a lot of resources onto it. So a lot of the independent developers started making their games. That's why Beat Saber came out and a lot of that was coming out. I I had my game demoed early on, I think, to Microsoft when they were still discovering where their platform could go, when they were still having their connect to. Like, I was not sure if they wanted to move to VR, but they ended up moving to independent stories. And And there was a lot of that that was going on, but I hope that there will be a resurgence because they can realize that there is this power in storytelling. When Half-Life Alex came out, I just like got a headset and I powered through that and I finished it as fast as I can. And it was beautiful. It was so beautiful. The space was immersive. I've seen a lot of folks uh, play around with the head crab in the weirdest way possible. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Uh, they, there was a, there was somebody who'd bring a head crab all around the game. There was somebody who, uh, there's, there's like a dead rat that you can find in a, in a trash bin. I'm not sure if you've seen this. They would carry the rat around the whole game, and they would like say hello to my friend. How are you? And just like make, make really, really funny videos with it. I was like, oh, hilarious. No, the the main thing I've seen from Alex is the uh, the teachers using the uh, markers. Oh yeah, that was really good. The teach lessons. So there's the one of the the math teacher that's kind of made it big, but I've seen others. Yeah, I've seen that too. I was I was surprised about the marker. Pretty pretty accurate because when I was trying markers initially on the lab, it was pretty. It wasn't pretty straightforward, but when I was using this in Alex, they just they got the the haptic feedback just right, so you could control the marker as you move, and I think that was very beautiful. So yeah, I do hope there will be a resurgence. Um, and you know, it Half Life Alex has also made us decide to I wouldn't really say change the game, but sort of rethink and focus our attention to to gameplay designs that we were sort of still figuring out and guessing that we want to do this. We're not sure if it works, but because we saw them work in Half-Life Alex, we realized that we want to focus our attention to those mechanics more. So we went ahead and just like changed some of the experiences so that we know that it's going to be better for the player. It's It's... I guess it's that Half-Life Alex was tried and true. Like all the mechanics there are stuff that they've tested for several years and they and Valve realized that this is a good mechanic. People love it. In playtesting, people love it. So we'll release it to the public. And because you have those mechanics and systems that Valve has playtested, developers can latch onto that and build games out of those systems. So that's yeah, what I'm looking is- forward to. This is another iteration of Valve took a leap, and it seems to have paid off. I'm happy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I've never been happy. I've been waiting for this game 13 years. <laughs> well, the the nice part is people won't have to wait long for Tales of the Aswang because May 28th, current planned I'm, release date. It's oh. I, I'm not sure if I mentioned we're actually moving it because of the coronavirus. That's why, that's why, that's why, unfortunately, yeah, we're moving it. And 
unfortunately we're trying to move it to december because the team cannot meet and and well you'll have to uh, wait a little longer yeah a little longer yeah a lot of these games it's pretty normal for games to get i would say like yeah they get delayed from time to time we do have we do have sort of i would say an old build that we used to show around in showcases and after Half-Life Alex came out, I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed about it, but I realized there were some mechanics in there that 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 probably were very risky. Um have you ever tried Boneworks? I have not. So when you do play Half-Life Alex, try playing Boneworks in Half-Life Alex and see what design choices Boneworks made versus Half-Life Alex. And it's pretty interesting to discover how they use the physics and the environment. Boneworks uses physics 100%. Half-Life Alex just uses just a portion of that physics to give you the interaction that you just need. While Boneworks is like, you can do everything. And sometimes for players, I've noticed that they've gotten really busy. So that's some of the thing about when you're developing things for VR, it's making those design choices about should we incorporate this physics ability to the player or do we take it away from them? And I think that's pretty interesting because when Half-Life 2 came out, basically they gave the player everything they can do with the physics. They can throw objects with a gravity gun and do everything, even though if that broke the game. That's why there were speedrunners that used prop jumping previously in the old Source engine, but Valve was fine with that. But now in VR, it's interesting that Valve sort of like meticulously was very laser focused on what physics capability the player could versus Boneworks, where you can practically do anything. And this is not a spoiler, but in Boneworks, if you had an enemy, you can actually grab them and punch them. And that, you know, you have physicality in that space. Like you can punch and do something to your enemies. In Half-Life Alex, punching a zombie or a head crab doesn't do anything, but you can do that to boxes and crates and objects around the world. So that tells you a lot about the design choices that Valve made. That was pretty interesting. There's a lot of that physics decisions that you can take a look at when you uh, compare them side by side, because I would say maybe they're almost similar because they're, they're, they allow full traversal of the space. They allow you to do games. They can interact. A lot of the enemies are almost similar, but the way you defeat these enemies are pretty interesting. So yeah. Well, I'll definitely have to check Boneworks out and get around to playing Alex yeah. whenever I have <laughs> Yeah, Sorry that this podcast ended up becoming a bit. <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, our show tends to wander, so yeah, it's happens. Um, yeah, uh, let's yeah, let's try to talk about the the game. Do you have any questions about um, I don't know the Aswang, the monster? Ideally. I guess my well, I mean, I don't want to. I I want to ask questions, but I also don't want to spoil an experience, especially for anybody that's actually looking to get into this well um, so I we can really we can talk think... off the record and you know maybe i'll, I'll shoot you an email and be like hey you know i want to talk about this oh, i well, want to figure this out but um for now we'll we'll leave that for for people to explore 
Sure. I, I, I love that. Um, I was, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, sharing stuff about the monsters doesn't necessarily spoil anything about the game. I mainly because there's mostly questions about the way the game sort of, I wouldn't really say redefines the monsters, but sort of tries to put them in the roots of where they are. So uh, an example would be, let's say, like, for example, the, the term aswang in most, in most places in the Philippines refer to it as just one creature that attacks you at, in the night. They just say, oh, the aswang will be there to get you. But because it was a term that really never defined the full-fledged creatures, other monsters like the Nuno, the Capre, the Manananggal, they end, um, Maximo Ramos ended up using the term as the collective term of all Filipino mythological creatures. And, and that's what I did in the game. I used Aswang as the collective term for the mythological creatures. One creature such as the Capre was was basically a tree-dwelling, tree-beard kind of character, is ideally said for most, um, in some cultures, or sorry, in some areas in the Philippines, is a monster that tends to threaten if you, you know, destroy their forest or their world. In some stories, they are guardians of the forest, and they guard basically the relationship between the environment and the place you're living in. So I wanted to draw more into that fear of it attacking you, but also, but but dive way deeper into understanding it that it's there to protect the environment. So that's that's something that you know I sort of like focus on is that those design choices may not sit well with some, but for some it'll sit. It, you know, like oh I get it now. But it's sort of like reintroducing. I wouldn't say yeah, reintroducing you a bit to it, but it's it's a very hard trying to make those choices because when you're making something like this, you're cha- you're sort of transforming oral mythology into something that's written down and concrete and viable and judged. Because with oral tradition, it's something that's passed on by stories and by folklore. And if nobody talks about it, it dies. And originally, Greek mythology was oral, but they had somebody like Plato homer to write it down that's why we have these books that we refer when we want to talk about zeus athena Ares, and you know the odyssey there are writers that that place all these gods and goddesses down but in other countries um such as the philippines there's nobody who've written them down maximo ramos tried to do that with his books he's got several books but because it's oral it evolves it changes so my game is essentially having these stories and finding them into an experience that's in VR. So I I will be expecting a lot of critique and reactions to the way I will be presenting these monsters, which I feel like is ideally going to happen. Well, you can't please everyone. And you know, they say any news is good news. So any controversy, whether it's good controversy or bad controversy, is... Uh, in the end, good for you because it, it drives attention to the title. You know, it could potentially pick up some sales because of people wanting the, uh, being like, oh, it can't be that, whatever this person is saying, that bad or that good. Like, and then, uh, that's, look them in. And yeah, thanks for that, AJ. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's, 
you know, it's very, I mean, you know, it's normal, pretty hard to please gamers <laughs> these I mean, days. It's, it's, it's hard to please everyone. I mean, if you made a game that pleased everyone, it'd turn out to be like a, a pretty boring version of Call of Duty, I would assume. <laughs> if, you, if you made a game that appealed to everyone, it would like a, yeah, it'd be a boring Call of Duty that had driving and soccer in it, I guess. <laughs> but, just like get all the elements that everybody yep. put it all together and see what happens <laughs> yeah well, I'll know, tell you what man it's been really good to talk to you oh yeah it's, yeah, we'll, it's uh, here. definitely talk to you after it comes out granted it'll be a little bit later but I think yep. in, in this instance especially with, with the pandemic going on People are being a lot more uh, accepting of delays, mm-hmm. um, or understanding like, oh, like we understand, like you can't work and you can't mm-hmm. do stuff. Like people aren't, you don't see the uh, the pitchforks coming out when a delay is announced. So you should be fine, right? Like people are accepting right now. In six mm-hmm. months, hopefully it's the same way. That's true. Well, you know, I'm having my fingers crossed. You know, I have a couple of games to play and see how that goes. But, you know, keep you posted. And, you know, once we have something up, I think we'll... we'll I'm having... I'm talking to the team and see if we can release, like, a, a demo level, just one space to see how that sure. goes. But, you know, I'll let you know how that goes. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much, AJ, for this time and this opportunity to share. Um, you know, I wish you well in this COVID nineteen situation, and okay. you know, I hope, <laughs> hope you know, you um, we can all play a lot of games and be safe. Stay indoors, everybody. Wash your hands. Yeah, wash your hands. <laughs> stay inside. Right. Uh, stay at home. If you're sick, don't go. Well, I hate to say don't go outside because that <laughs> would ruin your life. But just don't interact with. That's true. Well, yeah, stay six feet away, social distancing. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, that's which really I don't have helpful. a problem with. Like, I don't like touching people anyway, so this is awesome. <laughs> oh, I, I, gosh, I forgot to put this afterthought. We're basically close to Death Stranding at this point, but yeah, you know, it's another conversation. Yeah, yeah we're, in its own way, we're, we're approaching the uh, Death Stranding. So. Yes. Once that hits, then you know we can talk again about how uh, we're all porters yeah. and we need to bridge the U.S. and the other heavy-handed uh, uh, innuendos that he makes towards <laughs> the United States. So. True. All right. Thanks so much, AJ, for this time. Um, oh yeah, man. Leave you to it. All right. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special, as I'm calling these, the Corona interviews, um, because we're all independently in some form of lockdown or social distancing or something going on in that fun, crazy world. I'm Mike, and today I have with me three people where none of them are named AJ. We are all thankful for that. Um, so, let's see. So I have with me the crew behind Mop Boy. Uh, do we want to just go maybe around? We'll start with Paige. Introduce yourself, um, what you do on the game, and kind of go in a circle. 
Sure. Uh, my name is Paige, and um, I'm a recent graduate from Georgia Tech, and uh, I am a programmer for Mopboy, and I also make and some sound effects too. And yeah. Nice. Um, Jordan, would you like to go next? Okay. Um, yeah, my name is Jordan Eggleston. I am the animator for the game, or like the the lead animator. I do a lot of the the um, Mops animations um, when he's downstairs. And um, we we are all uh, graduated from Georgia Tech recently, um, but I'm personally just really gunning for uh, animation and trying to make that like my permanent thing. Nice. And Charleston, I hope I said that right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so I handle a lot of the background art and also uh, some of the upstairs like character sprite stuff. Um, and along with that, I do some of the music and yeah. Another thing is like, I don't want to throw in there, is that we each handle the different social medias. So like, right. it's crazy like making this how much we had to realize that like social media is a big part of having a studio and shit. But I also do Instagram, Jordan does Twitter, and then Paige does Tumblr. So that's just like some other shit, just some insider shit. <laughs> Wait, wait, so maybe, maybe I'm going to start with that one then. Because that, to me, is very interesting, that instead of, like, one you being, like, you're the social media person, each of you are, like, this is my domain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's mm-hmm. fun. <laughs> maybe one of you could talk about this who had this idea, because I'm very curious, even logistically, how that works. Because to me, like, a marketing campaign makes a lot, usually is from one person or, like, a very coordinated team, because that way it's a single message. Yeah. Well, I mean... So uh, originally it was like we would have like we all just kind of work together to to kind of uh, make all of them work. But um, we just felt like if we all specialized on one of them, then we could bring our own personality to each of them. And then we could have cool things like takeovers where like maybe I'll switch up and start doing the Tumblr for a day or something. And like, you know, people can really get to know, um, you know, each of us kind of through that. Um but we don't really uh, bump heads a lot or anything. A lot of times, if one of us makes a really good post, uh, we'll just share it with everybody else, and then you can have that. But um, it also just makes sure we're not spreading ourselves too thin or, you know, trying to make sure that we represent the, the best possible version of us at all times. It's like our own different ideas of what the best possible version of us is. That's very, it's just, it, it, on paper, it's just very interesting to me just because logistically, and maybe maybe as you are the lucky case of all of you just kind of have a central vision that works really well, but like, I could so see it go wrong so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> pretty good so far. <laughs> We've been very lucky. <laughs> nice. So, um, how about we start with, I'm going to say, Paige, you want to give us maybe the elevator pitch of what is Mopboy? so um i would describe it as um so it's a game about a family that owns a pizzeria and there's this bitter health inspector that they have history with who's trying to get them and um you know the family all kind of has to work together to keep the restaurant going but um it's also being terrorized by grease monsters and you play as Mop Boy, who's one of the kids in the family, and your job is to make sure the restaurant is kept clean. And um, it's 
uh, pixel art, kind of retro style uh, action platformer. And it's got some RPG elements. Um, there's like a hub world where you talk to your family and you get new abilities and stuff. And Yeah. So I've got to ask, is this like from one of your personal experiences? Like it's a very, it's a very interesting <laughs> Obviously, it's not relatable in the truest sense of the term, but, like, that's totally, like, you've, you, we've all seen those, like, family shops where it's, like, the entire family works there, and, you know, it's, like, everyone's trying to hold this together, and, like, it feels like you do that and just run off in fantasy real quick. Yeah, it's actually, it's kind of interesting that you say that, because um, my family owns the pizza restaurant, and so it's kind of based off of that, <laughs> but, yeah. It's very based off of that. <laughs> yeah. And that's the real life uh, name of the re- that Paige's family owns. <laughs> See that that just works out real great. Um, so immediately, I think what intrigued me of the game, I so this is where I think we're gonna jump into one of the two who do more art stuff because I think immediately that's a very interesting art look for the game. And I know it's, I know it's pixel art, but I think with the theme of it, it's a very like unexpected look of it too so i was curious either jordan or charleston maybe one of you kind of like where you got inspiration for like the look of the game so um started this game at a game jam um also i did the look of the upstairs i did a lot of that um but we started this at a game jam and honestly because we only had a weekend and it was like our first one uh, we kind of had made a few pixel art or 2D style games. And we were just familiar with that. So we kind of went with what we knew. And in terms of the looks, <laughs> honestly, I just thought of like inspirations. So a lot of people say like the style is reminiscent of like Earthbound or like Pokemon. That's because I really enjoy like those styles. So I kind of took that into account for some inspiration up there yeah we definitely um because the game is split up basically into two gameplay styles one of them is like top down rpg and all of that art is like done by charleston and then the other part is like the actor part we were talking about and that's mostly like or the at least the the character art is is done by me and i feel like um for me personally a lot of the inspiration for for why things look the way they look is because i really liked playing um momodora which is just like a, a recent um, Metroidvania game that really blew up. And um, I just kind of wanted to bring kind of energy into just a more fun environment. And this is very much like it's just a, it's a bright, you know, you're just running around cleaning up grease monsters and stuff. Um, so, yeah, it has been challenging, though, representing a, a restaurant in these big levels um, because, you know, restaurants only so big. Um and, uh, but we've, we've kind of, I think we've done a pretty good job meeting the challenge there. Oops, See, and that's, and so that's, that's, that's actually a challenge I didn't think of when we were talking about this too, even like the idea of like, it's a restaurant, so even the biggest restaurants aren't like 50 levels big and in, like inherently in size. So even, or if it's this idea of a smaller shop of like making, so I'm curious why you guys care about making it feel realistic in that capacity then because already you're going in like the extra step of like losing some realism because the game mm-hmm. well uh i know our first idea of what the game would kind of look like in this grand scheme of things is um 
we definitely wanted to introduce each level as if it were just a normal restaurant. So it's not going to look too strange or anything like that. But as you go deeper in there, it's almost like Mop's imagination kind of takes over. Um, and so that's where you'll get stuff like a, like an entire tower of stacked chairs or, um, you know, maybe like the, the bathroom stall is just a lot more expansive, I guess, and things like that. Um, so we're still definitely working on how to, without making it seem like it's just this crazy kind of fantasy. Um, but I think a, a lot of that is kind of why we steered more towards like still keep it real, like use real things, um, but just make it big. So the next kind of thing I, that always catches me when, you, when someone does a game like this is inherently the, these games are very like environmentally heavy and that, that ties, I think, into the mechanics of the games really well. So I'm curious from like a either like a puzzle solving or challenge point of view how you guys kind of jumped into this as as the progression of going through levels and maybe like some of your favorite like things you've come up with of like obviously in your marketing you t- there's like these ice pillars that come down and stuff like that just going through the kitchen and the environments. Okay, so I'll take this one I guess. Um, so we've honestly been learning this stuff. As we go, um, we're constantly watching videos like that are like, or GDC talks, for example, on like how to design levels and just studying like things that inspired us and trying to come up with our own mechanics and things and like, just like learn it from a coding perspective and stuff. So like one thing about this game is that um, because it's like our first big game that we're trying to do together, it's just constant learning and just studying stuff like that. Um, I do a lot of the design for the levels, like for the environment stuff and planning how the mechanic is going to tie into things. So um, one of my favorite moments from that has been like, just seeing like the difference between the experience in the first level of the game and the second one, which takes place in the kitchen because um Jordan and Paige, we all came up with this, like, and seeing that come to life and, like, implementing it in a fun way was, like, really cool because it showed that we were really, like, growing and learning. So we're hoping it gets better from here. So I'm curious then, since obviously you guys are saying you're learning on the fly for a lot of this, is there anything immediately that you thought would be super simple and you're like, oh, this was a pain in the butt? I feel like every time we put a new enemy in the game, um that's a hassle (laughs) uh i was very surprised by how the the opposite was true of the boss that was much easier to do like initially than i anticipated now we're still i mean you know there's still bugs and we're still ironing those out but yeah i'd say probably like like things that move and jump around a lot you figure that they kind of follow the same model as mop but they, they kind of have a mind of their own sometimes. Like, they'll do some really weird stuff, and we just have to figure out why. Maybe maybe let's backtrack. So you see, so you guys are use what tool are you guys using this? Unity, I assumed? Yes. Okay. So that's, that's kind of like where my lot, my specialized too. And that's what I was curious, because. And that is always interesting, because, like, even the AI element of that, because I assume foundationally a lot of them probably use a lot of MOPS systems, but, like, obviously you have to build something to do it for it. It's not like the the player, you're like, here's the stuff, go have fun. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um. So kind of going through this then. So you guys still don't have a release date, at least as the time we're recording this for this game. So I'm curious how you guys feel so far maybe of the cycle as it's your first big game together and if there's any other like fun things that like we haven't talked about that you guys are really proud of in the game. Um, can you actually repeat the question? You kind of cut out for a second there. Yeah, no problem. So, um, so I'm curious, kind of now you guys have had a, a bit on this, on this development cycle and it's your first big game kind of as a team. What is, what is like anything else that you guys are really proud of that we haven't got a chance to talk about so far in there that you feel like really makes the game shine? Hmm. I would say the story because um, that's been something we've slowly been building um, since we started, mm-hmm. since we decided to make it a full game basically. And we don't have anything like cemented for sure. This is what's going to happen in the story yet. But I've been really proud of like, all of the learning we've been doing just from a story writing perspective and the ideas that we've had so far feel really good. Um, but we never really post about it or show it off because, you know, they're not like confirmed that they're going to be in there yet. And also we just don't want to spoil stuff. Yeah. That's very interesting. Cause again, it's one of those games that like, there's always like, when I go back to this type of game, even over years past, it's, there's always like a story to kind of, push a player like through a thing but i've never thought of like the story taking the front pace of this really mm-hmm. yeah a lot of people seem surprised um like when we show it off at conventions and stuff uh whenever we like hint at there being a story people kind of laugh it off and they're like oh yeah the lore of mop boy as if there can't be any story to it but yeah <laughs> i honestly feel like it's it's gonna end up being one of the strongest suits of our game um just because i mean the gameplay and stuff is really fun but getting to know these characters, because in the game, these aren't just like, you know, you meet somebody on your adventure and then you, you go off and do whatever. This is like like a family and they, they have history and the story kind of like builds up a lot of their relationships and stuff. And you get to interact with them regularly upstairs. Um, so I feel like a, a lot of people, if we do it well, um, are going to end up like really liking some of these characters. And that's really exciting to kind of get ready for. Nice. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you guys for sitting down with me uh, during our fun pandemic moments together uh, to talk about Mop Boy. Uh, since there's a lot of social media, apparently, do you guys want to just go one at a time through your respective social media of where to find the game? So, it's, if you just search, like, at Mop Boy Game, it should come up on everything. Oh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> so, at Mop Boy Game on respective social media, and then it's mopboygame.com. Yes. yes. And then still TBD on our fun release date? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Especially with this <laughs> coronavirus. But um we'll try to use it to build. Yeah, we're we're going pretty hard with what we've got. But yep, yeah, that's Tumblr, Twitter, and um Instagram, all of them Mot Boy Game. As we close this off for the record, you guys continuing the trend of everyone just slowly dropping Facebook off their social media ideas for video games. <laughs> Like, when I talk to you, it's like, be like, half the people on Facebook, now we're done to, like, a third of the quarter, most people are just like, it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. it's Maybe if we add a fourth member, we'll have them. I was about to say. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be, like, the intern's job. You're like, go do the Facebook part. Yeah. <laughs>
Perfect. Well, thanks, guys, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for having us. Yep. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a, as I'm calling these, the Corona editions of uh, the SWW show. Uh, because in a, some capacity, all of us are in some form of isolation now. Um, I'm Mike. Today with me, two special guests. Uh, can we start with Bobby? Probably start with you, and then we'll move over of who you are and what game you're working on. Uh, well, I am uh, Bobby. I am lead programmer for BCS Games. Uh, currently, we're working on a new project. Um, well, uh, as that's happening, can I can the other one of us who's with us introduce themselves too? Hey, I'm Alex. I am the game designer, lead game designer, and project manager for BCS Games. And yes, Bobby, we can talk about uh, our next our upcoming game as well. <laughs> So yeah, but uh, uh, as you probably know, I mean, uh, we thought this podcast could be about Cranky Cannon, which is one of our older games that we released on Steam. Um, but yeah, we're happy to talk about uh, whatever we're working on as well. So, right. Yeah, we'll get to that then first. Um, yeah, yeah so we're, we're, we're pretty flexible. So first, yeah. So I, I, the reason I brought you guys on here was actually Cranky Cannon, but obviously, if you have more to talk about, we could always talk about more. So I have to ask the initial question, just because you guys are like three people on your team. So what yep. is, to you guys, the difference between a lead developer and a project manager? Because on a team that size, to me, they should be a very similar role. Well, pretty much, well, we all, especially for Cranky Cannon, I mean, we all put down lines of code like no other. Um, we're all wearing different hats, but, you know, there's, it's always important at least one of us basically kind of keeps the ball rolling. We have time, you know, timelines and deadlines and whatnot, because I think that's really important with any game. Uh, it's just sometimes when, you, when you're so into the code, uh, you kind of forget about, okay, well, is this 100% necessary, what you're working on? Uh, you know, you always have fears of feature creep, you know? That's a pretty pretty common thing in the industry. And uh, we just, it, it's it's very important to always keep an entire timeline nice and organized, and everybody has their, you know, respective tasks. Do you then, that would mean, like, project managers more akin to the producer then, is what you're saying in this capacity? Yes. Okay. Okay. Correct. I mean, a producer is a is is a manager. That, that is that is on. true. It's just more of a curious because yeah. it's obviously a team of this size. It's like obviously you guys each of you are wearing twenty hats on any given day. So it's very curious yeah. of like how do you how do you really separate? Because I always had problems around these small teams. It's like when there's two or three of you, you're like I he does a lot of things. I do a lot of things. Just some stuff he does better than me. Is how that works out? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we also work with some independent contractors as well, so they have to be managed as well. So. Okay. Fair enough. Um. How about a good way to start is, Bobby, do you want to give us the elevator pitch of Cranky Cannon? Bobby? Uh, elevator pitch is... Uh, oh, okay, never mind. Sorry, I had to look it up real quick. Well, it's a, uh, definitely a puzzle game to challenge you quite a bit. It uses some semi-realistic physics as well as some wonky physics and... Uh, kind of challenges you to look at puzzles in a little bit of a different way because it kind of bl uh, blends in some platformer aspects to it. Uh, and But you have to figure everything out through physics. 
Yeah, so I was playing some of it. So one of the things that intrigued me, I'm going to obviously assume you guys in Subcasty were influenced by Angry Birds, I would say, is one of the notorious things to me, just because the way you guys use physics and the initial launching of the characters. Is that correct? Uh, a little bit. Actually, surprisingly, what was the kind of, uh, at least the inspiration for this game was this old game called Kitten Cannon. I don't know if you remember that old web game. And the game basically, uh, you fired a cannon, right? And along the trajectory, when it hit the ground, there were little items like explosives and trampolines that, you know, uh, it, it was totally random. You were just hoping to see how far you can get the, I should say, the, the kitten, you know, in terms of distance. So a very, very simple concept. Uh, and we wanted to expand on that. It was just like, what happens if you could actually then directly place objects in the scene to redirect the cannonball to actually eventually get to an actual target. So that's where the redirection comes from with the, 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 the arrow bumpers that you see in the game. The, yeah, the arrow bumpers are a very interesting way I think you guys did it. The other one that intrigues me a lot is the way like it very quickly, because in it's, it's, in its basic form, it's a very simple idea of a game. It's get the, yeah. get the cannon, into the thing of hey you're good but the mm -hmm. way you guys do it obviously between blocking some of the stuff or you have the bumpers or just bounce pads stuff like that inherently gets it very very i don't say convoluted but very intense very quickly and then yes so one of the things that in instantly hit me which i was curious and either of you probably talk about this is why in a game like this did you still put like a life counter of sort for the level are you talking about like uh, the the number of shots, the ammo? Yeah, perhaps? so you have the number of shots on a per level basis. So the whole idea is basically so uh, you could each level can be beaten in multiple ways. However, each level can only be mastered. So we actually have a separation between you know completing a level and then mastering a level. Um, we kept to have we wanted to have multiple shots just to allow people to keep trying to you know at least complete the level. But that extra challenge, and we actually get awarded uh, currency to actually unlock hints later down the line, which I'm sure is very useful down the line, is by mastering the level, which means you actually have to, on the first shot when you enter a level, you actually have to get to the target and use all of your bumpers. So there's so the way it is, you have multiple ways to solve a level, at least so you can actually you know get to other levels, right? But there's only one way to actually truly Com completely master the level, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it was just a very, I think, immediately stuck to me as a very interesting just design choice, just because mm -hmm. of obviously the way this game is played, it, it's just the way you guys set up is, in theory, you could just be like, well, we're just going once, and then until when you beat it, you beat it. I just thought it was very interesting that you guys kind of force the player to stop at a certain point and kind of like, almost like, an, and mentally makes them think before they hit that continue button. Kind of yeah. like, okay, what I do wrong? Yeah, exactly. So there, there is some psychology behind it as well. I mean, the original uh, concept for uh, Kiki Cannon, about halfway through, I mean, we, we were actually intending it to be a mobile game, right? A free-to-play mobile game. And then as we got through, you know, most of the level designs, we're just like, oh, we don't know if this is going to be, uh, at least most mo free-to-play mobile ga games will be too privy to uh, this type of game. Because, I mean, it is a very challenging puzzle game that is non-procedural in terms of level design. 
Yeah, which is funny because when you said mobile game, I think minus the proceduralness, I think it would fit the idea of a mobile game very well. Because obviously you could see it very yes. easily. You're like, okay, you have the, you do the the Candy Crush model, you have three lives, if you get a life back. Like you, it'd so easily fit that model, relatively yeah. speaking. But you'd have then handcraft a couple thousand levels to keep people playing. Correct. Yes. But yeah, the reason why we also wanted to handcraft those, uh, uh, all the levels is more. It was also a very educational experience making this game because this was literally our first game. Uh, none of us actually come from any type of uh, game development specific backgrounds, especially uh, general dev, web dev, and one, whatnot. And so this was very experimental. We wanted to see uh, if you know the three of us could actually take a concept and literally roll with it and actually ship. And that's exactly what we did. So I'm curious then, this way, and both of you obviously could hop in, probably start with Alex and then go to Bobby, is what were you, so what were you guys before then, before making this game, that you had skills as obviously transferred in some capacity? So actually, I come from uh, actually a music and animation background. Um, I was actually working with, uh, before Bobby actually joined us, I was working with uh, the third partner, Anthony, first on some music production stuff. And we were actually working on creating some, uh, using game engines to actually create audio reactive uh, animation and effects materials actually for live, live musical performances. And so um, slowly that actually just generally transitioned. I mean, we were already using game engines. It just, it was a logical step. Dude, let's make a game. This could be fun. Nice. And what about you, Bobby? Were you doing something similar or... Uh, well, before all of this, uh, I'd gone to college and got a degree, bachelor's computer science. Uh, but my focus was on security, data management, database work, and data structures and whatnot. And a lot of that doesn't quite transfer over to game design. When you're working with uh, things like a database versus live engine and everything, there's quite a few differences. And then worked as a mechanic for a while, which surprisingly brought in a lot of useful things and knowledge into game design. So I've got, um, I've got to ask the obvious question. How does a mechanic transfer into game design in that way really well? Uh, well, when you take something, you know, when you're looking at games and everything and you're looking for inspiration in a game, uh, if you just try to start to create a game from nothing, you're not going to really get anywhere without first trying to dissect a system and understanding how everything interacts, whether it's being, you know, a character inventory system and how that inventory system carries over to the weapon and then how that weapon carries over to actually being used by the player. And with cars and everything, when you take them apart and put them back together, it really helps kind of, um, I figure what that type of thinking is, but uh, being able to take something apart and put it back together from the ground up. Interesting. Okay. That, so it makes sense when you say it out loud, just in the immediacy. I'm like, that's a very interesting thing to want A to B right there. So, okay, so then obviously, so you guys worked on this, then, and you guys, so what is, probably, oh, we'll start with you, Bobby, and then we'll jump to Alex. What is, like, the first thing, kind of going through making this first game that you, that you guys completely, like, thought would be easy, and it was a pain in the butt? Honestly, everything. <laughs> well, that what did you say, Bobby? I gotta think. I'm trying to think if I can think of something that was honestly the hardest with this game. I was say, the engineer over here probably like I could see. I could see you have the part of like the te- a lot of the technical feats too. Because a lot of my background is design and programming stuff, so I could be like, I could, I could understand you like everything should be easy, and then it just stops working one day. 
I think basically I would say, you know, going along with the whole, uh, you know, what Bobby was talking about how being a mechanic actually does transfer over very well to, uh, you know, be able to break things down and then rebuild them. Um, literally just how specific and how well thought out every single mechanic has to be implemented. You know, uh, I think initially when you get into game development, you don't really think about just how much thought has to go into something as, uh, you know, as something as minute as perhaps, okay, what's the, what is the initial velocity of a projectile, right? But that is just, that's an incredibly important factor and variable in the game. Um, There's just uh, a whole lot of other things that uh, literally was very shocking. Like, um, just basically, Cranky Cannon was a game that was basically, uh, we, we, we conceived the entire concept, right? We had an idea of what we wanted it to look like. And actually, surprisingly, by the end of it, it actually did come out very similar to what we had imagined. But uh, that was almost uh, actually a pretty magical moment because literally we were just constantly just trying to move forward and approach problems as they arose and then tackled those problems head on. And I can remember uh, one of them was, trying to create that uh, hint system, right? Dealing with post-processing effects and writing custom shaders for that. That was, you know, that took us probably a good couple of weeks to do, to try to figure that out. Writing in, yeah, what is I it? Think that, was pro- that was, sorry about that. Uh, that was probably the most difficult piece was the whole post-processing system that had to be integrated for the hint system. To get it to look and feel the way that it does was very challenging. Yeah, I've always said with post-processing, I feel like the first, there's always the argument, of the, it's one of those things, when you've never done before, you're like, this is black magic, and then the first two times you do it, you're still convinced it's black magic, and then eventually you're like, this is controllable magic. That's yeah. That's how I look at it. Yeah, it becomes practical I, voodoo. <laughs> I think the most challenging aspect with uh, the post-processing in Cranky Cannon had to do with the fact that it didn't actually use Unity's post-processing stack whatsoever. Um, it was a manually scripted post-processing system that would basically blit an LUT over the screen texture and then through Unity's low-level graphics library manually render all the objects that had to be then rendered over something that was already transparent but had to be rendered as not so much and still getting everything else that was behind all of that to then not render even if the shader and the gpu and everything was saying oh hey you know this object in the background it's transparent it's supposed to be you know it's over the post-processing it's the same render layer and everything and so getting everything to be cohesive and look clean was very difficult so i've got to ask immediately why do you do that to yourself and not just use unity's out of the box because it wasn't able to do it there wasn't a way to get an uh lut shader with Unity's post-processing to work that way at the time. And to also make it performance on a mobile platform. At least that was the initial concept. Obviously, totally fine for a desktop. But like I said, we we initially conceived this idea as being a mobile game. So obviously, optimization was a very important factor. It's kind of like a weird opposite negative you guys had of you really cared about processing, and then at the end of the day, you're like, oh, we didn't have to care to that extent, at least. Yeah. Well, we certainly learned a lot. Okay, nice. Um, so now, obviously, you guys teased us in the beginning. Uh, you're working on a new project, you said? Uh, yeah. Um, actually, Bobby, you want to handle this? 
Uh, yeah, I can uh, talk about it a little bit, let you talk about it. But uh, the current game we're working on is going to be called Feudal Doodle, most likely. The idea behind it is it's going to be kind of like a horde wave defense kind of game. But and this is a mobile game, by the way. So just to add, this will be a game. But the way you're going to be able to use your weapons and everything like that that you're going to be given is by drawing the path that you want to be able to basically fire like a ballista or something around. And your shot that you fire is going to follow the path that you draw with your finger. And over time, all these paths that you draw are going to still continue to kind of stay on the screen really faded. And you'll be able to kind of see everything that you've drawn uh, over time as each wave or each day or whatever or a round progresses or each level progresses kind of a thing. Interesting. So what was the inspiration for doing a game like that? Uh, I think I can handle that one. Um, So pretty much we were kind of in the middle. Our our game that we did after Cranky Cannon was a a game we called Hyperdive that uh, we kind of didn't work with a publisher. Uh, They wanted to change the game a whole bunch and let's just say lots of disagreements and we decided to scrap the project. And so we were looking for a new project and trying to come up with a new idea. And it was, it was taking a little longer just to come up with some imaginative uh, new concepts. And basically I'm sitting there at the whiteboard and I'm thinking, you know, trying to take notes. I'm just like, you know, we're doing all these random sketches of, you know, what, what we're thinking about. I'm just like, wait, what if we actually use this as an basically as an aesthetic? So it's interesting. So basically, Fiddle Doodle actually came out of what uh, out of more of a aesthetic or art style idea, and then from the art style, we're like, oh, this is how we can gamify it. But that, it, it was totally backwards. That is, that, you say it's backwards, but there's a shocking amount of games where it's like, here's this one thing we have to build a game around this, and it, it could be as yeah. simple as here's the art style. Yeah. I mean, that literally was the, it was the launching platform, you know, the springboard that said, oh man, this is, I mean, after that one moment, I took us literally one day to literally just fill out this, you know, we have this big whiteboard in the office, a seven foot whiteboard. And that thing was just densely packed with the entire concept for the entire game. Um, But it just takes, you know, just that one little, you know, that seed of an idea. Nice. Is there a timeline on this game then, or anything along those lines? Uh, well, obviously, you know, there's a very, very different, uh, very, very big difference in the way you approach, you know, games to be supported on platforms like Steam versus, you know, answering the highly volatile mobile market. Um, so for the mobile market, it's very important that you're constantly market testing the mechanics of the game and whatnot to just make sure you're on the right path because, you know, UA is insanely expensive on mobile compared to even steam i mean it's it's literally all about user numbers especially free to play i mean it comes down to the advertising budget and obviously as a small indie studio um you know we have to be very very careful as to how we apply our ua budget so we're hoping to actually launch a quick little uh hopefully by this friday a quick little um mobile market test just running some ads and whatnot, trying to just see what our CPI and our retention rates, just day one, day three, what for now. Interesting. Okay, so so it's one of those games that like are you gonna you're gonna do the very mobile thing of like here's our continual soft launches until you feel it's in the state you want it to be. Then correct before then you actually just start pumping money into advertising. 
No, the, no, the correct answer is you just pump all of your budget immediately in the mobile market and just scream what happened. Yeah, right. <laughs> I always find it interesting. I think it was, I think it was Bethesda talked about that with Fallout Shelter. They, they did, they tried to do originally the, the council approach, and then they like, learned, they go, no, no. And then, like, because they worked with the mobile team, they're like, no, it's how you do it. And I've always, I've always found it fascinating, the differences in the way that, like, just pure mobile games have to be marketed. Yeah. Have to, because we think of games, even with early access, you think of it as, okay, here is our, our launch date, and early access, and here's our launch date, and the in-between matter, but, like, we really focus on those dates. When mobile's like, I don't care what day of the week it is. Yeah, it doesn't matter, actually. Although, I mean, most of the time when you're doing market testing, you generally want to launch them on Friday for the weekends, because you always get an uptick of, uh, uh, of mobile players on the weekend. That's how it works, so... You have a much more accurate depiction of, you know, getting those retention rates and the, the CPI. Because honestly, advertising on the weekend actually can can actually end up being actually most expensive, and there's a reason for that. See, see, that's why now is the best time because everyone's stuck being really bored to launch something. I know, right? Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks, guys, for sitting down with me. So, uh, if one of you want to walk through all of the fun stuff of where do we find, where do we find Cranky Cannon? Where do we find your new game coming up and all that fun stuff? Oh, so Cranky Cannon is currently available on Steam. Um, just search Cranky Cannon and it should pop up or the first result. Um, and then Feudal Doodle, we're hoping to actually have our full release probably in about two months, two and a half months or so down the line uh, with small little market test. So if you're constantly searching Feudal Doodle in the App Store, it's gonna it, we're just gonna be testing just on iOS right now. You might see it pop up, you know, when we do those small little uh market market tests just for no more than two hundred to three hundred users, you know. But uh yeah, two months out. So expect it probably around probably May be the most accurate uh launch timeline. And then all of this I assume would be on the VCSgames.com website eventually. Yes, it will be there. So it'll be a nice convenient link for you to find directly on its dedicated webpage. Perfect. Well, thanks guys for joining me for this discussion about Craig Canning and the soon to be. Let's figure it out. Is that Fruitle Doodle? Fruitle Doodle, yeah. Uh, I'm going to botch that the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Mike, for uh, having us on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. No problem. And again, thanks guys. Enjoy the rest of your evening. And everyone out there, stay safe. All right, you too. Thanks, Mike.